Welcome to Mecha Nations, a critical analysis and rewatch podcast of all things Mecha. My name is Ignis Maddox. I don't think Lord Genome is referencing that uh, body cam footage. I'm Stephen Hero. I guess the revolution really was televised. <laughs> I'm PMC Trilogy, and in the, this episode we learn that Adina has tail, but she's not a tailor. <laughs> tailor? <laughs> We, we are, are engaged, we are engaged that button. Yeah. So, gentlemen, uh, last time we talked... Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Steven Hero. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Destroyed. <Exploited. laughs> I'm sorry. Go Mission ahead. failure. Uh, so, I had talked about speedrunning Armored Core Project Phantasma, the second Armored Core game for the, for the PlayStation 1. Uh, I can report that since then, I did successfully achieve the world record status uh, for the any percent category. Congratulations. Congratulations. And uh, it was fun. It was really good. Uh, You know, I'm playing again on the the Japanese version on PSTV. I also went back and routed a category for Armored Core 1 that I call any percent no fail missions because it has the, uh, the prohibition of... You can't just abort missions, right? Because remember, that was the problem in Armored Core 1 is that That's the 80% right. category is mostly just start a mission, leave. Start a mission, <laughs> leave for like 15 minutes. And then you do the last three missions. Great. So successfully uh, came with that category, found some new clips, did some fun setups, uh, you know, ratted out some things. It pr- could probably still be improved. You know, there's some ideas I have, but I did get it down to like a low 50 minute time. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Um, so that's going to be, you know, I think that rounds out my submissions. I had thought about doing some kind of new game plus thing for project Phantasma, but I just don't, I'm looking at it. I don't think it would be different enough that I would really have like a strong sales pitch for it. And it's already, you know, a, you know, 31 minute run. Right. Yeah. So, it's not really like uh, you know the end of the world to do that. Uh, so I feel like I'm mostly said. The, one other comment is that I am currently uh, feeling a bit down on the speed potential of Deep Space Nine: The Fallen, and that was unfortunately most. I hate to say this is mostly due to the Kira parts. Uh, the Kira parts, uh, compa- and this is weird because both the the overarc of each characters journeys is very similar you know the characters are on the same missions they're just doing different things in those same missions right and uh there's a part where everyone gets captured by the dominion by the Jemadar, and the uh, you have to break out of prison the surprise and the uh and like cisco's is very straightforward he just sort of like i don't know his his like special emissary mind overloads the torture machine and then he just breaks out and kills all the all the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the vorda y- you are entering into that um, yeah. stage of Deep Space Nine <laughs> now was this post was this did this uh, get released concurrently with the show's run this was right after so this was okay. 2000 mm-hmm. apparently it is the only I, was, I looked up some facts here's some fun trivia Ooh, uh, Deep Space Nine The Fallen mm-hmm. for PC is the only time Terry Farrell reprised the role of Dax post Deep Space Nine. That makes sense to me. I was very surprised to hear Terry Farrell as Jet Zia spoilers for uh, uh, when you were playing it because I yeah. knew this came out in the year 2000. Right, after. right. 
the year 2000. Uh, the other fun bit of trivia is that someone had interviewed uh, Nana Visitor, the you know ac- actor who plays Karen Reese, about the experience of doing video game voice acting, because I don't know that she's really done a lot of it. Probably not. And uh, she said that it was really sort of a, a marathon experience, because when you go into the recording booth, like some of your lines you're doing normal like you would on the TV show, but you also have to do all those like, huh. now you've died by electrocution, now you've died by drowning, you know, in, in the span of like, you know, a very short period of time. And she says, you know, there's a lot of range <laughs> to, to, to doing this. Just watch your life flash before your eyes. Yeah. She is of the, um, so DS9 has uh, the the loving benefit of uh, a ton of artsy fartsy folk in its cast. Like, uh, obviously, Avery Brooks is uh, uh, a teacher, a professor. Uh, someone who is is very concerned with history and, and African arts. Uh, Nana Visitor is the real shit when it comes to uh, dance, singing, and performance. So she is one of those who has a lot of interesting, like, I, I wouldn't call them relatable, <laughs> like, insights into that sort of stuff. But it, it uh, often when I read her interviews, I'm like, Damn, what an interesting person <laughs> she really has. Like, you know, she's funny too. Is the thing, and and I'm sure. What once this interview published? Do you remember? I need I need to go back because I had read it on a uh, a Star Trek fan wiki. Oh, boy. so I need I would need to follow the the links back to the Was source. It Memory Alpha. No, it might have been. Yeah. Maybe there's I mean, Memory Alpha is the Wikipedia of Star there's Trek. So many <laughs> Star Trek fan wikis. Yeah, as many. There's a, a Memory Beta. So yes, this, yeah. this is for the book canons that it, book and comic book canons. Memory Alpha is the main canon. This is a this is a real thing. I might be making. I, okay, so I I could be wrong about the name of Memory Beta. It might not be Memory Beta. So Star Trek has an EU. Well, so uh, I mean, kind of in the sense that. It, in, with Star Wars, I think there was less of a like proclamation. Like George Lucas didn't walk out with his stone tablets and say that everything that was in a comic book or a novel didn't really count. But like, I felt like it, it's fair to say that that was like a cultural understanding, right? Mm-hmm. That that even if these things were Star Wars stories happening in the Star Wars setting with Star Wars characters, like unless it was a movie and everyone, the culture acknowledged that it happened, it didn't really happen. Even if people like the Thrawn trilogy and, and like, I don't know, uh, 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 jizz music from, from Jabba's palace. <laughs> Two like, extremes you, there. Yeah, you know. Um, it's my favorite form of music. It's, and, yes, that's right. I, I named it that. I loved jizz music. <laughs> Did you see um, uh, Dan Olsen, fold, a foldable human, was, was uh, he was like, ah, yes, I'm glad jizz is still real. <laughs> but in any case, I, I don't think with Star Trek, yeah. there was that same sort of like cultural... Like, this is much more individual, how much you personally enjoy that sort of... So, like, for example, there's a bunch of post-end of DS9 novels that will deal with events like, uh, you know, what is going to happen to the Dominion after the Dominion War and, you know... Uh, uh, Jake and how his life differs from the visitor, right? Like there is a we have a a life path painted out in the show that we can now explore how it differs from mm-hmm, you right, know. right. Um, and I think that you know, for example, for me, Ignis Maddox, like there's a, a story point about how uh, in the um, Andorian Star Trek race there is uh, a four. Um, identified gender, uh, not roles, but like uh, identities, and and their characters who uh, uh, 
pair in groups of four and and stuff like that is like pretty basic for sci-fi novels like that's a you know people were doing that in the like 60s and 70s and 80s like mm-hmm. your you know your your pervasoids you know yeah, yeah. Um, your strangers in strange lands and stuff like that but you know for star trek they, they wouldn't do that on the shows they would never get around to someone who's in a relationship with three other people or it would be like a comedy ferengi Right, yeah, Fuck there'd face. be some kind of awful caricature <laughs> yeah. involved. Yeah, because yeah, Rick Berman yeah. would instantly corrupt it into something yeah, terrible. Yeah. Um, I, oh, are you more more Star Trek? The or? only thing I was going to say was that um, it, it's a very pick and choose. Like that's why for me, I kind of enjoy that sort of. I, I think for me, that's my attitude towards everything. That's mm-hmm. you know, because it's yeah. comic booky, right? Because it's comic books are a lot of the same way. But anyway, so just as a, as a coda. I, I think you can kind of tell that I feel like I, I accomplished what I wanted to in terms of setting up SGTQ submissions, Armored Core Town, it really well. The Wharf playthrough for Deep Space Nine, I think I'm going to save for after I finish Season 6. Uh, I definitely will finish it at some point because it definitely is worth... If, if you like 2000s third-person action games and you like Deep Space Nine, there is so much in... The writers for the the game did a good job of packing in lots of references to things in Deep Space Nine. They referenced the counterinsurgency program and the, the episode where they, they alter Kira to look like a Cardassian. And there are all sorts of cute things. I'm going to steal it from you so I can walk around Deep Space Nine. Yeah. I was watching you walk around Deep Space yeah. Nine and I was like, I want to... I want to be there. It's fun. I want to do that. But on that note, getting away from speedrunning, uh, my next week of streaming is going to be nothing but mechs. Because I'm going nothing to st- start Zone of the Enders, the Fist of Mars. <laughs> oh, no. It's going to happen. Keep the Fist of Mars away from me. <laughs> the Fist of Mars is coming. It cannot be denied. No. And then additionally, as a reprieve, maybe also a speed investigation uh, I'm going to be playing the sequel to Kalik, the DNA Imperative, which in North America is just called Epidemic. But the Japanese and Europe, European title is way better. Maybe one of the best video game titles of all time. Oh my goodness. Kalik 2, The Blood, Reason, and Madness. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's, that's a video game ass title if I that's, ever heard of one. Okay, but I mean... <laughs> I, I will agree that that is one of the best, but only if you don't count Tactics Ogre's titles. That's only if you remove yeah. Tactics Ogre's titles yeah. from the mix, because right. Tactics Ogre, you know, Ogre Battle sixty four, no Person of Lordly Caliber, there. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Person of Lordly Caliber, or Let Us Cling Together. Like th- these are undeniably right. great, very good. Um, Not all of them, though. Knights of Lotus, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. but and Star Ocean has the one uh, faithlessness and integrity, one of the best. <laughs> Faithlessness and integrity fucking kills me every time I hear it. But um, one thing I wanted to say before we move on from the speed realm, but the speed force, yes. <laughs> where, we, where we live. Yes. Um, two things, actually. First off, uh, uh, I've been playing Xenoblade 2 recently, and there's an enemy in it that are just straight up called a speed runner. And <laughs> these little chickens that run very fast. And I'm like, this seems hateful. <laughs> that, that's foul. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but uh, the second thing I was going to say was that when you, you said you were routing, um, uh, uh, I wanted to call it Phantasmagoria. That's not what it's called. <laughs> um, the Armored Core game. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought for a second you were going to say, I routed all those Grand Blue players. They're all dead now. <laughs> so I could buy Armored Core. And I was like, wow, PMC. That's fucking harsh. <laughs> you had to do it to them, all right? <laughs> yeah. Are you getting a lot of uh, Armored Core diehards in your chat? 
You know, I would say the Armored Core people that have shown up so far, and it's been two things. You know, it's been people who are just browsing through the retro category and mm-hmm. say, see Armored Core. And then it's been, you know, the people who, who had done Armored Core speedrunning in the past. Uh, and honestly, they've all been really nice. I, I think, you know, compared to... Uh, compared to other compared to other games series that are popular enough to warrant people just dropping in, I would say these folks have been been much nicer and just kind of more interested in in just sort of uh, reminiscing and enjoy enjoying it. Uh, I'm probably just happy to see a new face. Yeah, how many people are streaming a armored core in the year 2020? And not many. You know, it's something I've kept an eye on over the years because you know if there had been you know a popular speedrunner or or somebody that I know, and I've seen. Over the years, there are two people I can think of who've done you know streamed playthroughs of the series, and uh, but it was just sort of one time things, and you know they, and they didn't speed run it. So, uh, but you know, hopefully more people will, will find it. I mean, certainly my great goal is, of course, to to announce myself as loudly as possible in the scene by by being the first person to speed run an armored core at a GDQ. Right, that would be you know the brand the brand would be on yes, fire exactly. Uh, but. We'll see if that happens. I'm still having fun. Right now, I can say Master of Arena, which is the next one. Is that three? The third, Yeah, it's the third one. Armored Core 3 is a separate game. Don't, yeah, sorry. <laughs> from Soft. I've played games from Japan. Yeah. Before, <laughs> uh, Master of Arena, the third PlayStation 1 game for an Armored Core series. If no Armored Core gets an SGDQ, I'll probably do that in April. Uh, if it does get an SGDQ, I'll probably save it for post-SGDQ. Cool. So, we'll see. Uh, yeah, so before I go off into the realm, because I'll be taking us into the realm of comic books, mm-hmm. so we'll never return. Never Sorry. return. Uh, Steven Hero, did you want to... You know, Steven, uh, when we started talking about Picard, I was with you in mm-hmm. the journey of Picard, because I watched that first episode, and I was like, yes, this seems like a Picard show. Uh, how does the rest of Picard continue? I'm curious specifically, how is episode four and five? I feel like two and three are part of a piece, and I'm curious to see how four and five felt. The best thing I could say about Picard, some bits of Picard, it's very much in love with its own world building. So if you're curious where Star Trek goes post-Voyager, if you just like to chew on the scenery, you'll probably dig Picard. If you really enjoy the tone of classic Trek, I'm talking about late 80s, 90s Trek, you're going to be a little disappointed. It's very like, what if Christopher Nolan decided to make some Star Trek? Right. That's not a slight against Picard or Christopher Nolan. It's just very it's very serious at times. It does It lacks the quote-unquote utopian, ambi- utopian ambitions of the earlier shows. And I think Tra- Star Trek exists best as like almost like a workplace. Drama is too strong a word, but a, a place uh, where you have a bunch of people are working in close quarters for 24 episodes. A serialized workplace drama. I think that there is a, a serious concern of, of mine when it comes to modern Trek where it feels like the people who are making it, and this is not a slight, I'm not saying you need to fucking love the thing you're making in order to really make a good version of that. That's clearly not true. Um, but uh, I do feel like Picard felt as like a show where the people who were making it were like, all right, we want to make a modern show, and if it has to be Star Trek, then it is what it is. Mm. Versus like, yes, we get to make a Star Trek show in the modern and i think that's more or less what you're saying which is that you know it it is in the trappings of that world and if you're curious about just the plot happenings moving forward and there's some dope shit with particularly seven of nine where she ends up is super cool 
I'll give it like some light spoilers. She's so dissatisfied with the Federation that she says, fuck it. I'm joining the Rangers. We're going. It's like vigilante justice. We're going to help people in need. That's yeah, super dope. If you had to like write like a custom D&D campaign for Star Trek, that's the direction you might take it. It's like a real – at times, Picard is like a really cool – a lot of cool table setting, but like a lot – like a really cool D&D adventure. The problem is the, the cast around Picard, like the characters are inc- incredibly weak at times, very one-dimensional. They don't are not given the opportunity to become fully fleshed out yet as of episode six. So I feel like there is a a thing where um, and when you are like a serious a serious critic where you are predicting a thing and you you look at the project of Picard and you go, well, uh, this has the risk of being incredibly self indulgent mm-hmm. and specifically for a particular audience, right? So the thing they need to do is have it be a new story that's not necessarily focused on the characters that we know. Um, I think that when you go through the motions of that, it, it it's obviously not satisfying. And, and I got that feeling... It's very much beholden to its lore, though, despite the fact you have all these new... That's not a pun. It could be a pun. I don't know, but that's not a pun. I'm almost certain that Hugh is, is possessed by lore. I'm, I'm, uh, spoilers, so am I, but yeah. Spoilers for everything, but like the, the, the guy who's running the big Borg Cube reclamation project that the Rom- Romulans are all part of is, is Hugh, and there's just he, he just seems suspicious. There's something about the Romulan Borg people that seems suspicious. It seems like the Romulans and the Borg are connected in a way that uh, is new to this show, but like, I don't know, that's fine, I guess. Like, I feel like, in a weird way, TNG and, I guess, Voyager really fell in love with the Borg too much. Like, mm. the Borg is this is, is almost like this, like, heroine for Star Trek that, it, it like, injects what it wants to It does to be bring like. in outside. It brought me in as a kid, though. I was just interested in these cubes. There's something about the monolithic nature of them. Like, that was, it was very commercialized, but it sold me originally in the 90s when I was a young kid. That's how I got interested in Trek. It was really first contact. It, well, sure. And it's, uh, on, a, on the aesthetic level, it's, it's, it, it's like, it, captivating, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's engaging. It's just that when, when you really... Uh, 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 you know, with Voyager, I, I have less to say about this because I have not rewatched Voyager in a like serious way, Same. in a way where I'm like trying to not just hate every second of it. Like, and, and, and you know, I'm not. I don't want to make Voyager people mad. Like, I don't. I'm. I'm. I'm, I'm here for like Trek unity, <laughs> Trek fan unity, but. The thing I, I think we got to do it to make Trek good. I know we talk about this a lot of machinations. How do we make Trek good? There's this conceit about, like, yes, Trek is forward-facing. This is – we humans could reach this place. I, I think I think we need to start thinking about Trek would, as it is, which is fiction. Like, it, it, I think we need to stop, you know – romanticizing it as as a as a piece i think we can have romantic things happening in it not capital r romance but as in like hyperbolic or or utopian ideas like stick to the utopian ideas the thing that they're having a hard time with in these modern you know both discovery and and picard is that in 2020 it is harder to make that leap that tng did tng just says we are past it we are past it. We just says it. And it doesn't show it. And for a lot of people, that's not good enough. A lot of people are very like, like, oh, they didn't they didn't do the work. And like 
That's kind of true. The but- work can also be exhausting and produce a product that's just not worthwhile. And and to be honest, the same people who are com- the same people who would make those complaints, Bacard is trying to address them, and it's not making you any happier. It, it is honestly trying to address those things. It is pr- particularly, I mean, it's very much influenced by real world events, and it's very much wearing that on its shoulders, which is fine. But it's showing you that you know. It's not a fucking utopia. It's very critical of like the underpinning power structures of the Federation and how that can naturally corrupt. Yeah, I think this is – and this is what you were – the thing you were saying is what I was getting to, which is like the, the question is, is that a good story? Yeah. And and sometimes no. Like, and, and really too, like when you're – Star Trek – like when you do romanticize Star Trek, you're on the bridge. You're looking forward. You're planning your next five-year mission, five mission into the deep. That's, that's cool. That's what's enticing about it. And not all Star Trek has to be that. The problem is when you're, it's very beholden in the lore, so it's really just like filleting itself in the in like the terminology and like, ooh, did you catch this reference? It's it's heavily, deeply invested in the past. It's not looking. It's not saying what can we do next. It's saying what did we do, and that isn't. It's not that enjoyable to watch. Well, yeah. at times. But the world, the, the exercises in world building are cool. Jonathan Franks is making his appearance in episode seven, based on the coming, uh, what's coming up next episode. Fucked so. up if true. I'm going to uh, get some little misty-eyed, I'm sure, a bit. Where are all the Deep Space Nine characters? They are mentioned. Quark is mentioned in the last episode. Only name drop. That's a good point, though. I don't... Okay. I don't want to sit here and be like, I don't give a shit about 7 or 9 because um, motherfuckers haven't mentioned Captain Nog yet. Like, if I was... Mm, I'm just glad they didn't mention Harry Kim yet, but that's I, besides the point. I just... Look, 7 and 9 is the best part of Voyager. Almost, I think most people would agree. Seven of nine followed by the doctor. Seven of nine, the EMH, some, and Janeway, if you're a certain sort of person. And then I guess if you're really stretching, fucking Tuvok. I think they do Tuvok dirty, but I do like Tuvok in the show. Tuvok is like a, um, he stares at the camera uh, in the office sort of character where he's like, he just like, please help me. He's the Roshi of Voyager in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just when it comes to, that's the other thing that I feel in this show is that like, it's very odd for something to be coming 30 years almost after the fact and to still kind of be living in this, like DS nine is the shameful stepchild Mm -hmm. of, of, of Star Trek because it, it, it dared to vanilla criticize some of Star Trek's concepts. So like, it doesn't even really that harsh, like the 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 closest it gets to is the Maquis thing, and I would argue the Maquis thing is a textual sort of group of people who are feeling empowered to engage in a, a revolution that is wrongheaded. Like you know, this is a sort of thing. Like saying it out loud, it sounds like a gross sort of story to tell. But like they were introduced in Deep Space Nine. Or yeah, they. D- I only know of them through Voyager. They began in Deep Space Nine. Mm, interesting. To lead into Voyager and like. And in the classic sort of like hilariously true thing about both shows, DS9 did more with the Maquis than Voyager ever did. Um, but the the problem I, I've always had with that is is sort of a similar thing. It's a different conversation though. The Maquis, in any case, the the it's, it's just weird to not have. You know, I'm not saying they should be dealing with DS9 plot points after in the show after the fact. I'm saying like, you know, where's Bashir would have things to say about this. I don't, you know, not to get into spoilers, but to, for modified humans that didn't know they were modified, Bashir would have 
words and would maybe be useful, especially if there's Section 31 stuff going on, which, you know... I just watched that last night. Oh, it, was that Sassy Bashir one where he's being gaslit the whole episode? Yeah, yeah. That is one of my favorite Alexander Siddig performances ever. Oh, yeah, he's he incredible the whole time. Episode. Yeah, yeah. Love that episode. Um, just so we can get to our, our main stuff, I'm not going to yeah. do too too much. I've been playing Xenoblade 2 recently. Um, see everything we've had to say about Titty on this show. <laughs> um, That's but, what's kept me away. Well, um, you know, and that's fair. It, and, that a t- and the time investment, too. Um, yeah, it doesn't respect your time. Um, there's a hilarious critique that Jason Schreier wrote about how, how, how much it doesn't respect your time. He really didn't like the game at all. The battle system for Xenoblade 1 was obtuse for me, or just not fun to chew through, so that's what also is keeping away. Yeah, no, I mean, I famously quit Xenoblade 1 after a few hours and then watched the rest of it on YouTube while sick, uh, which was worth it, actually. I the, the cut like The voice acting cast in Xenoblade 1 is so much fun. Yeah. So. Music's dope, too. It's funny yeah. because um, the <laughs> I'm really surprised by how much I don't like the dub in 2 because of how much mm. I do in 1. Um, and the music is Are so Are you so playing the, the main game or the quote-unquote expansion? Oh, the Golden Country? Well, so um, Xenoblade 2 does this cool thing. Um, put on your your Xenogears glasses uh, or your Xenogears headphones, I guess, um, because uh, th- the Golden Country is a lot like if you got to play the um, Krellian Lacan backstory. Uh, like if you were playing as those characters, that's sort of what Torna the Golden Country is. It's set up for the motivations of your primary antagonists where it's framing them as your protagonists, right? So if you got to play as Graf and Krellian, you know, that's kind of what the Golden Country is. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead you're playing as the Tetsuya Nomura-designed characters. Uh, I don't know... Oh, that's right, he did do the... Yeah. So kind of the, the like core idea behind it is that they, they got in touch with a lot of different artists to design the blades, the like stands of the game. Um, there's great mech design in it. Um, the there the guy who does the mech design in this is uh, I forget what I forget his name, but he's he does the oh gosh what is it called Fallen from Heaven or something like that. It is a more recent mech mm-hmm. thing, um, and you can really see like it looks like Xenoblade. Like he did not really uh, alter his style much between Xenoblade Two and uh, this other thing. Oh my goodness. Um, uh, but in any case, uh, it's. Good PlayStation Two era JRPG mm-hmm. um, mindlessness. It's yeah. it's grindy, but in that way that can be, uh, you know, it can produce those endorphins in someone who probably grew up between eighty nine and two thousand. Yeah. Right? Like it's it's hard for me to uh, 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 recommend it to anyone other than someone who's just a connoisseur of this kind of thing. It's a very good, like, if you wanted to watch just how popcorn shonen, like, it's definitely good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of, well, not really. Not really. Young men. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about hype young men. Yeah. And, and, and women. General Adina, please. Watch what you say. All our transmissions are being recorded. Uh, let's, let's talk about 10-11. 10-11, um, you know, grief has moved into the Daigoran Brigade. And uh, I think we're going to start figuring out, you know, how to live with this uncomfortable, smelly roommate. <laughs> um, let us, let us fuck. Uh, no, let us, uh, 
<laughs> my mind always goes to that when uh, anyone says "let us." Yeah, something. exactly. There was a um, <laughs> there was a comedy bang bang uh, uh, Christmas special recently where Scott Ackerman and Paul Tonkins just kept going "ooh la la" sex, and so now <laughs> when I hear the phrase "ooh la la," I instantly add sex afterwards. There are so many people in my Twitter sphere who are referring to the new Xbox as the sex box, and it's completely <laughs> ruining it for me. It's the Xbox Series X. It's the sex box. I keep and now also because of the the recently announced um <laughs> sword, the X Men series. I'm now thinking of like, well, wait, did they have a sword too? <laughs> X of swords. Oh, I'm so excited about X Men with swords. Ah, oh, great. In any case, in any case, Gurren Lagan. <clears throat> so episode ten. Who really was this bro person? This bro person? This bro person. A DNA has Nia in her grasp, but is reminded that she may get in a wee bit of trouble for murdering the Spiral King's daughter. She retreats for now, but the Tiger and Don must decide what to do with Nia. They treat this surprisingly seriously, but they are no match for her impenetrable earnestness. They take her to Simone, who is doing very poorly, and he ends up telling her about Kamina. Yoko arrives to overhear the story, one where Simone thinks Kamina was the reason they all survived. Nia tries to explain to Simone uh, that Simone doesn't realize his own contributions, but goes too far and makes Simone and Yoko upset with her observations about Kamina. It isn't long after that Adine returns, having learned that Lord Genome had abandoned Nia to the wastes. She has come back to kill the humans in Nia, who sacrifices herself willingly to buy the Digrand on time. Nia, even now, tries to understand what is driving our DNA and tries to help our DNA understand the Digrandon so the fighting can stop, but her words do not reach her. Simone, unable to start the Lagan, dashes to Nia's rescue despite that, but is overtaken by the rest of the Digrandon and their gunmen. Our DNA is driven off thanks to the Digrand giving her the boot, but she is saved in the last moment by Viral. Nia is afterwards accepted into the Digrandon, but takes special care to thank Simone, who, know- who she knows was the first to run to her aid. Uh, intro is slaps. <laughs> I know this is not new. It's not even the new intro. It changed last week when, um, or not last week, you know. Oh yeah, in, for episode nine. In episode yeah. nine, yeah. when Nia joined the the the, uh, the cast. But um, I just wanted to note this this new one with Nia is nice. With the uh, there's something that about the so uh, something that's weird that happens in Xenoblade Two when you play it is that. Um, there's a moment where you realize that you've stopped noticing the design aesthetic and you and you and you know you, you have an Ozymandias look upon my works in despair moment <laughs> where you're like shit <laughs> and and I'm now having that realization with um the the Digurin because it's a comedy dick boat but now it's like home in a way that we're I'm, right, like isn't that like you this, see this dick boat? This it, dick boat is for me. Yeah, this is this is my house. This is my dick boat. Y- yeah, it's, it's it, they're highlighting details too. So I, have, I had some other things to say later, but I'll say it now too. It's just more, more endearing now. Like it's got the paint job. There's a little scene later where you see like his little smokestack, a little chugging some smoke, and like it, there's a scene later where he waves. The, the he being the fucking thing. Yeah, waves, oh, when yeah. the boat slides down the, the hill to the he gives a little queen's wave. Yeah, yeah. It's it for real. It's it is. There's something that and I, and this is the this is the magic of mechs that 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 we we have like imprinted upon it or or we bestowed upon it like um, emotional sort of reality. Right. There's there is something inviting about it now. 
Um, but this is beyond the text of this episode. Right. Uh, I mean, if you want to talk about mech designs in the text of this episode, I, I've, <laughs> talk, I've been on record before as not being a fan of, of chest faces as a general design thing. I can see where you're going with and this. <laughs> Wait, do you not like a DNA's mech? A DNA's mech is atrocious. Oh, no! It is awful. <laughs> it I'm kind of into it, right, that's well, I do, Okay, I do want to make a clarification, though. I do think uh, there is a thing about a DNA's mech, which is cool. Mm. The nice thing I'll say about DNA's mech, and this also will come up next episode, is uh, Transformers are cool. Yes, okay. No yes. argument here. Yeah, and so when a DNA goes into uh, Scorpion Crab mode, pretty dope. Okay, I'm, I'm a fan of that. So you like that mode? You like beast mode? We'll call yes, it yes, beast um, mode. But, That's but right. human mode, not into. No, I'm, I I think the the idea of like your your the I mean I I've been on record saying the cheeks are cheeks, but in this case, uh, the eyes are boobs, and the mouth is just the the vagina just screaming crotch. at you. Yeah. <laughs> just. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to stand. I'm pulling in two different directions with the design mech. So yes. It's 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 very much sexualized. It's exploitative. It's a bit unnecessary too. However, it really the show really wears its sexuality on sleeve. Like, like there are dicks everywhere in the show too. Right. It's it's creepy because there's also a bunch of dudes drew this too. I get that, and I don't really know too much about her whether or not her design is anyway empowering or reflecting anything like personal. So I can't really comment on that right now. But the show is just full of genitalia, so, all of it, everywhere, both symbolic and not literal and figurative. So something that we talked about. The last time we talked about Gurren Lagann was the, the sort of idea that, that PMC offered, which is that the, the Beastmen don't seem to have a strong sense of aesthetic themselves, right? A DNA seems to be a little bit of a, an exception to this. It feels like actually the, the four generals have a more developed sense of humanity than some of the rank-and-file Beastmen. Yeah. Um, we see even, you know, Cytomander we don't really see do much, but we see is dressed in a way that invokes like a peacock right like and while that could just be you know it cytomander's nature just you know being expressed visually like we also get the impression with a dna and the way that she presents and the way that she won't let in you know how much she's hurting about female and and that's what makes her upset and then later we'll see like one of my favorite things about a dna is how expressive she is i love when she's uh, um, uh, 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 yelling at uh, Nia, who is... You know what Nia does, by the way, which is great? Nia is much better at um, the Luch's uh, 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 waving and prodding. Like, she's yeah. so good at that. The way that she... Uh, later in this episode, when she's in Adine's grasp, she'll be um, philosophizing at her. This is one of my favorite things about the character, is how... She really doesn't change her approach to situations based off of her, like context. Like she, is, the way she's responding to Adine's interrogation, the exact way she responds to Kitan's. Right in Kitan, she's in no danger. The, like, like you know, we'll get to the Kitan yeah, interrogation yeah. because it's wonderful. <laughs> but with Adine, she will die. <laughs> she, the frosting is made of mercury. Do not sample it. You will die. <laughs> Um, and, and she's still concerned about getting to the center of the, the, the question, right? Of what is driving Adine and what is driving the Digrandon and why it, it drives them against each other. But anyway, I agree that her mech is striking. The Seirun, <laughs> right? Is that how you pronounce Seir- it? Well, yeah. so yes. So the, the, do you remember we, 
uh, we talked about the four generals are themed after the I, I called them the four cardinal directions. Um, the uh, uh, Biako, right? B- yeah, Biako the, the tiger, and, yeah. and that was the name of uh, Themilf's mech was Biaku or something like that. And this one, um, Seiryu, is the name of the dragon. So Seirune is probably mm. what they're going for there. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, uh, she retreats because she realizes that she's got the body cam on. Because <laughs> the one, the one beastman's like, ah, we're being recorded. <laughs> Fucking, we we probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, you got to wash your hands before you uh, come out of there. Yeah, yeah don't don't touch your face. Wash your hands. Um, Turn the page. Wash, wash your, your hands. <laughs> um, so this at this point, the the Digrim Brigade. Uh, having suffered a a substantial loss, um, all unanimously decide to take this seriously. Um, the problem is they can't. They can't. Roshiyu can. Yoko can. But the Dai Grendon as a unit? No. No. So they, they're having a lunch. They're having a, a, a delicious dinner. And Dayaka's like, uh, so you're the princess, right? And Nia's like, hey, try this. Dayaka does. And he's like, wow, it's pretty good. <laughs> and so Kitan, you know, <laughs> this is one of my favorite bits of um, uh, comedy shorthand Gainax animations <laughs> where the size of oh, yeah. Kitan's uh, uh, meat <laughs> will will change substantially throughout the scene. <laughs> I really love the size of his meat slab. <laughs> and later when he's introducing himself the way that he grows in the scene is so funny, and his little maneuver as he takes a bite of the meat slab. Uh, does, did anyone else have a note about this interrogation scene? Or I mean, for the interrogation scene, I think I, I had shared this with you guys in our in our group chat, was that it, it reminded me very much of the Xenogears parody, Rope of Robots, where there's a, a scene where Ramses interrogates uh, Marguerite. Uh, early, and this is, if you've played Xenogears, you would remember this is an actual scene, not just the parody version. Uh, but in the parody version, uh, Marguerite just sort of like yells cake and Rams is like, damn, she's good. <laughs> yeah. And that was kind of the energy I was getting from this where, where Katan is just, you know, he, he, he says thing after thing. And, it, and it's one of those situations where it's sort of the, the language he's using is so alien to Nia. And Nia is just like, well, what's this? And of course, Katan keeps answering the questions. <laughs> what I like about it is that it, it it's playing like. Nia is naive that that she is uh, clueless even. Um, but what's actually going on is that she is gathering intel that, that she's just fearless, you know. And this is something we'll see reinforced later. Like she she does not have a a compunction about getting in harm's way really. And and it's not necessarily that she doesn't understand the position she's in. It's it's just that not a problem for her in that way. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's something to be said about that being just matter of fact Mm -hmm. and, and that how much that works for you is definitely your mileage may vary sort of thing, right? There are some people when, when they have their characters, uh, laid out for them, they really want every aspect like underlined or emphasized or justified, right? So like for Simone, for example, um, because he's our, our primary perspective character, we've been pretty thorough about examining like why he's so inside himself right now, right? It's very easy to understand why he's stuck in this funk, right? Whereas, you know, with someone we meet more recently, 
it, it's that's a starker sort of thing to just sort of accept matter of fact. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. Do you think that that's a, a fair thing to suggest about? Yeah, know, absolutely. How characters can be painted for people. Um, for me, this works for Nia, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, now we're uh, in our second episode with Nia. How do you guys feel about Nia at, at now as opposed to our introduction where she's definitely a little bit more magical princess? Yeah, she's evolving from the girl in the box trope in good ways. She yeah. has more depth and I like I like the ways in which she interacts with uh, Simo. And I'll talk more about this later when we have a little bit more context for uh, how she she's basically like, well, I'll talk about it later. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing to say about about Nia is that she is n- not just an object from a box. You know, she pushes back, pushes to say, interacts with everyone, you know, interacts with Ladina, interacts with Simone, with Katan, everyone, in, in a way that defines her as a character, which is what you want. It, totally. I completely agree. And the old guy's, uh, he seems to be a, a great chef. Oh, Gigi, yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, Coco. That is, is that his name? No, his name is Coco. Oh, um, Coco. Uh, yeah, he's he's uh, Coco oh, visits right, yeah. uh, PMC chat often. What's up, Coco? Uh, uh, in any case, uh, at this point, we are cutting back to the capital. I believe as we we see mm-hmm. some some more politicking with. Uh, I have a question. I have something I, I want to throw out at you guys. What do you guys think about Lord Genome's harem? Do you think those those ladies are real? I think they're not. But but I'm curious. I, 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 what does it mean to be real? So, Are the beastmen real? So okay. All right, I'm out. This is <laughs> so. This is what I mean. This is okay. So, PMC of the future. I am invoking spoilers. 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 Anyway, uh, when Simone uh, confronts Lord Genome, uh, when Lord Genome summons the Lasengan, we see these the this harem of women. P- turn into drills and become the power source for the Sengon, which suggests to me that they're spiral power apparitions um, that, that Lord Genome, because specifically that Lord Genome doesn't seem to have a ability to make connections in the way that Simone does. I, I would argue that's kind of the difference between the two that, that um, while Simone is insular, he looks to make connections with people to help him not be insular. And Lord Genome does not. Garen Lagan isn't now, but eventually will, be leaning into hard paralleling the choices that Simone makes in the moment of absolute despair versus the choices that Lord Gino makes in the moment of absolute despair, which is the reason why I ask. And, and I'm thinking about mm-hmm. that, that, that moment ahead, the, just because to me, and obviously this is like, there are times with, with Gurren Lagans and the Tunes logic where you just got to let it go. Right. Where it's just, just, don't worry about it. It's, it's not, it's fine. Um, but to me, that that would be more like visual storytelling about Lord Genome's character, and and maybe what we should just do is table this until. Well, I was going to say is that regardless of what the factual finding is right. in regards to what the the harem is actually right. Uh, the, either way, it's a demonstration of power, right. which is really what you know what this is about. The that we're we're learning that Lord Genome, you know is happy to surround himself in this show of luxury, you right. know, whether that's really, 
he just he loves it or this is a show of power or something like that. He he is feeding himself in some way here, whether that's his ego or his carnal desires or whatever. I think that's a, a really good way of putting it. I had a question for you two. Speaking of the Spiral King, because I immediately think when I when we first are introduced to this character, I compared him immediately to uh, King Shithead, uh, Charles V. Britannia. Oh, yeah. And the one thing I, I think the Spiral King has going for him is... So when I say I respect the Spiral King, it doesn't mean I agree with him. I respect him as a villain and like an enemy worthy of Simone and his crew and Kamina. Like I can like dig him as a villain. He has a certain menace around him. He has an authoritative quality that is intimidating, but I think it befits the narrative. Mm. Whereas King Britannia, Charles Fuckface, he's seen more of a caricature, like someone I laugh at. I have trouble taking seriously, despite the fact that in the context of the show, he wields enormous power. So I think um, it has everything to do with execution, right? So, so when it comes to King Shithead, um, the the way we were introduced to him and his ideology is through the that speech, right? That big like, you know, freedom sucks, fascism rules. You know, uh, <laughs> the weak will perish. Yeah, the, the, the strong will rise yeah, and elevate. Exactly. Um, and like that's such a like a, 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 the on the noseness of it works one of two ways it is either um overdose for you where you're just like like passing out from so much of it or the it's like ah yes i i see the bonk bonk on the head that they're trying to do with this um and i think with lord genome the mystery of lord genome um helps you sort of you can contextualize lord genome at first as a sort of um kang the conqueror or a uh 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 ming the merciless like a a, a sci-fi just villain, right? You get, he's like, you know, for me, like, I, I saw their genome and immediately went to a Ganondorf place. So I'm like, okay, despot, yeah. right? Some kind of powerful despot. Um, and, and as we learn more about Lord Genome, w- what we maybe see is that, you know, what if Shinji was jacked is, is kind of a Lord Genome. And, you know, we'll talk about that more as we move forward. Um, but, uh, I mean, to answer the question, I, I feel like the, the reason it works is because there is a specific ideology that is being espoused right away with Charles, before we get to know Charles as a person or character. And with Lord Genome, the presence of Lord Genome as a as the, the agent of the oppression, as the, the source of it, is felt way before... We're introduced to Lord Genome as a singular character, mm-hmm. and and so there, we already have a framework to fit him in. Versus with King Shithead, where we, we understand, I you know my, the structure of it escapes me right the second. But before we get that speech, I don't know. I I don't know if we have a picture of King Shithead other than he's just a shit dad, right? And I'm not saying that that's not bad enough in and of itself. I'm just saying that I think that's the difference. I think that's why Lord Genome is, uh, you know, and that it's more simple. The fact that there isn't an ideology up front about it probably makes it easier to swallow as mm-hmm. a narrative thing. D- does that make sense? Do you guys feel like I'm on the right track? Yeah, I, I think it makes sense. Yeah, uh, I think it's just a cool villain and like a worthy villain, especially in the wake of communist passing too. Like this is this is a fucking big guy that we're going to take down, and I can respect him for that, not his ideology. When that when that's what's actually I think uh, the real like trick of it is you know um, when it comes to the beastmen, we have um, we have fuzzbos who are the like rank and file i call them fuzzbos um and then we have your your generals so themilf and sidomander and guam and adine who are 
human-esque. And I would put Viral in this category, right? Viral is kind of their peer, even yeah. though they don't treat him thusly. We, we see Adina mm-hmm. like, really brutalize Viral. Um, even though he's the only reason she finds any success in this episode, that is to say, escapes from being, you know, stomped on. Stomped on yeah. Um, but, um, uh, when it comes to the, the different sort of beast, there's still like cartoons, right? They're still, uh, hyperbolic. And when it comes to their genome, he's, he, he's like King Zangief. He, he, you know, we've lost our, our biggest, like, you know, when you talk about um, human presences, like, when you come, talk about strength, like, Kamino really was the, like, Simone is not that. Simone has a, a, a puckishness, a heroism that is inherent in the same sort of way that Frodo is heroic, right? Whereas, like, you know, part of the reason that losing Boromir was such a blow to the Fellowship was that Boromir was, like, their best warrior, right? Like, Boromir was a dude who came from a, a place of warriors, right? Uh, and Kamina was kind of that. Uh, you know, he was an idiot version of that. Um, and, I, and I don't think for a second that Kamina would ever want the ring. Um, but that's a whole other conversation <laughs> I, that I do want to have, by the way. Um, but, you know, um, Lord Genome, I think, it do, is the first time we see him after episode eight? I think it is, right? I believe so. Yeah. But that's really sketchy. That's smart. That's fucking good. Currently Gone's a good show. But anyway, <laughs> um, I really want to talk about this next scene because it's fucking great. Um, when Kitan realizes, Kitan and Dayaka realize they're not fucking getting anywhere with Nia, uh, they bring Nia to Simone, who they know Nia responds to. And Simone is um, not doing good. He, he hasn't improved since Nia. I actually like that he hasn't improved since Nia has shown up. That it's not just a, yeah, you know... It would be too easy. It, it's not a cure-all for the situation. And it would commodify her even more. Right. Um, but I do like that what is helping is talking. So she just is legitimately interested in Simone and wants to hear about what he's doing and thinking about. Um, and so when he talks about Kamina some more... She finally asks the question. She finally poses, you know, the big question, the elephant in the room, which is who was Kamina? Like, everyone's talking about Kamina. Who was this guy? Um, and Simone t- tells her, right? He tells her what he he saw. You know, uh, let's see. I don't think Kamina fought out of hatred. He was, he was like, you know, strong and tough and kind. Like, we, we hear more of it later. Um, but in order to demonstrate it, he tells a story, um, and a story that, you know, Yoko comes to overhear. She says something that I like. Uh, she talks about, I'd like to hear about him, too. Um, and there's something uh, effectively sincere about that, right? There is a, that is a way to sort of uh, uh, process grief is to, like, live with it, right? To be in it. And I yeah. think that's why, you know, people find solace in, like, awake or you know that that sort of getting together with loved ones to feel it together right um and what we learn is that this is a story that yoko knows but we don't we won't hear yoko's end of it right away exactly but this is really really i forgot about this this is really good storytelling i really like this how um one of my favorite things to do in in fiction is that rashomon thing where you have one story 
but seven different altered pers- not seven specifically but i use seven off the top of my head altered perspectives on it and what that lets you do is that it, it kind of demonstrates how to um instead of arriving at the truth take disparate pieces of information and arrive at a result right mm-hmm. with a narrative in a way that sounds like a equation but is true about engaging with with a, a piece all right do you i, I mean steven here you're you're a teacher uh, like if if I submitted that to you, do you feel like that's... Oh, yeah. No, that, I had that same note, too. Like, I like I keep returning this motif of talking in these two episodes, how therapeutic talking can be. But I think it really works well with... Well, it works well, in my opinion, for two reasons. One, it's a great juxtaposition against the Beastmen. Because the Beastmen, they don't talk. They don't cooperate. They are simply dominate, and they are very fractious with one another. They're divided. But all the humans in the show which is, you know, rather it's a very optimistic portrayal of humanity, band together to survive, to prosper, or, you know, to live hale and hearty lives. On the other hand, too, talking is... It's, it complements Kamina really well because he ha- has now achieved mythic proportions. He right. is the story, like we mentioned last time, which I think is really great for his character. Because he can do far more damage and be far more empowering as a mythical construct than he ever could be, no matter how strong he was as like a physical construct, a, a human being. Right. Well, what's great about this, too, is that he really did have hyperbolic uh, achievements. And now they're going to become even more hyperbolic. We will see... There, there's going to be a statue of this dude. They're, they're going to name the home city of, of the human society after him. Um, uh, but what else is great about this is that Nia, Nia wasn't here. Nia doesn't know this guy. And so Nia is the only one who has the ability to say the important things. Um, unfortunately, right now, sometimes the right thing to say, there is a time to say it. And right now is not really the time... They're, Simone and Yoko especially are not ready to hear this from Nia. Simone doesn't really have the emotional energy to react in the way that, that Yoko does. And I think that Yoko has a, a decent point, which is to say that, you know, Nia uh, is maybe not considering the the where this where her uh perspective is coming from necessarily when she shares it. She means well, she does, but she's not considering how it would might sound to someone like Simone and Yoko. Yeah, she has trouble reading a room, which makes sense. She's been in a box for a while. Right. She hasn't interacted with human beings before. I will also say that Yoko, you know, we're, we're planting the seeds of Yoko feeling uh, 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 jealous of Nia in a sort of uh, petty sort of way, like a, in a sort of uh, uh, territorial sort of way. I don't, while this is like stereotypical i would say i don't necessarily have a problem i don't think this is untrue no to i don't Yoko. either it is I, it's a it's a natural response and this this is always very subjective what someone deems to be a natural response and what someone does and you just right. have like an internal feeling you, you can't really quantify it but you could point it out if there's something wrong yeah this is one of those where i'd put it in the box of like if it bothers you like i i wouldn't argue against it necessarily like, yeah same like i could recognize where some people would find fault with it but i'm fine with it yeah i think it works i think it makes sense for the character um uh when when a DNA comes back, oh, <laughs> shout outs to the sleepy guy. <laughs> That's a that guy's a big mood. <laughs> I love that they put him on lookout. <laughs> that's so. That's so Tiger and Dawn. Do we have a name for, for lack of a better term, lick, lips? Oh, guy? Attenborough. There you go. Yeah, Attenborough. He is. He will be our David Attenborough himself. Yeah. He, he will be our friend. He will be our ally. He's very 1930s American cartoon. Yes. I. That's kind of what I dig. Uh, he definitely looks like he walked out of the Nickelodeon series Doug. 
Mm. Um, yeah, he's very loopy. Yes, he he looks like um, he definitely looks like that era, and he's. I think this is the first time we see him, right? Because um, uh, the the DNA is doing the uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure uh, my stand territory thing, and there's just water coming. Uh, and uh, the uh, you know the sleepy guy is announcing that there's just a water uh, you know a, a, a tsunami coming and Attenborough's just for some reason he's not sitting at the table he's standing on his chair at the table drinking something and he's like Marrr! you know uh, I I don't know how he's his dub performance is I'm just doing my impression it's of not the too sub. far off yeah I think uh, it's one of those dub performances where they they kind of you know because it's a comic beat I think they just try to sort of emulate that energy so i'm um, talking about how people are approaching the simone problem uh i do want to shout out that um pmc's boy roshu is is really connected to simone's emotional beats here he's concerned about leaving things as they are he wants to be doing something active when it comes to helping simone out of this rut and so he he goes to in his mind who must be the most um uh uh, responsible person in the guy Digerendon, which is Liron. Liron is the one with the the understanding of how everything works. Liron is the one who's always working on keeping things moving. Even though Liron teases people and Liron is is always flirting, uh, Liron when he's doing stuff, it gets done. And for Roshu, he's he's very um, he's very clear eyed about that. He can definitely see. You know, there's that there's a famous Mister Rogers quote about like. Look for the helpers, right? Those are the people who you, you want to latch on to. And I think Roshu notices that Liron's the helper, even if Liron will also, like, you know, pinch your butt and, and then you run away. Like I will say, I do like the... I, like I mentioned before, and this is a positive about Gainax's portrayal of Liron, is the fact that he is allowed to be who he wants in the show, as of in this one episode, too. Because there's a shot with him in his heels, for example, and the show doesn't gawk or point it out or make it a joke. He's just allowed to exist. And exist on his own terms. Oh, and Liron's always had these heels. I know, from, but yeah, I, yeah. I noticed at the beginning, too, but in this particular shot as well, because he's bent down. And I just, I'm just glad that Gynax resisted the urge, if the urge was there, to make a shitty joke. Just like the Bathhouse episode, there wasn't a joke about any, anything in yeah. that regard. I, mean, uh, I, can't, I can't stand for future episodes, but here in this regard, I'm just glad that... They didn't resort to anything. Like, Did I? I didn't get gawking. this confused, right? This this conversation between Liron and, and Roshu happens in ten, right? Not in eleven. I don't. I, I, I it doesn't I happen in eleven. I'm sorry. <laughs> I could have sworn it happened in in ten, but I don't think I, I don't think I have a note about it. So I, mm. I was referring to the scene with the two of them in the engine room. Yeah, in the engine. That's what we're talking. Yeah, about. that's yeah, what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't getting yeah, you're right. um, uh, confused because I what I like about this moment. I want to highlight this now because I'm going to talk about the opposite in the next episode. I like that Liron is like, what are we, you know, there's nothing to do. Like, this is yeah. something that the, the kid has to work out on his own for better or for worse. And so if, if the Lagan doesn't feel like doing the heavy lifting for him, I, I don't blame him. And, you know, this seems harsh, right? But to me, this reads as tough love. And, and I'll, I think, you know, in the next conversation about Eleven, I think that will become more clear. Or at least I will explain why I have that perspective. Um, but Adina's back, uh, and she's been uh, basically empowered to do whatever the fuck she wants. Um, and Nia, had, you know, we talked about it earlier. Nia is trying to um, bridge the gap here. She thinks that that's, that's just going to solve the problem. If It's just like, oh, well, she just sees that the Daigrindon are, are, are good people, and they're just trying to live. 
uh, then probably th- we can just come to some kind of accord. And and I don't think it, 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 that she doesn't understand that that it's just not about that at all. I think she you know is hopeful, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not that she doesn't consider that as much as, she, as she's just operating without that as a like roadblock, right? There are there are ways you can do things that seem improbable that don't involve getting stuck behind you know can we do this thing or or how how are we going to pay for this thing <clears throat> yeah anyway um uh what did you guys think about this beat with with Nia reaching out to um uh, Adina do you feel like this was going through the motions or did you feel this was honest i think it was it w- it was honest, and I think it expanded upon. Uh, you know, I, I like to talk a lot about how the show portrays the, the beastmen and their society, and I think here you you have a moment where it's it's kind of a you know Nia's Nia's putting on Front Street the ideas of like a cycle of violence. You know, like because because at one point DNA is like, well, you know, they, they killed Demelf. Like, what about that? Huh? 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 Yeah. And uh, you know, Nia says, well, well, the Daguerrean the they're hurting too. You know, they, they lost someone who was very important to them. And I, I think what you see then is that in the face of, you know, a sort of, um, you know, oppressive system like the one Adina represents and the one that Adina is a soldier for, because right. really that's what we're talking about here is that, uh, Adina is happy to use ammunition or m- use motivation as ammunition when it suits her. But, that's not the reason to do something. That's a tool, that sort of thing. Uh, and so I think here that really highlights it, which is that, that you know, Adina is in a constant, uh, you know, just in a constant territorial dispute, in effect. You know, whether, whether she's advancing the territorial interests of the Spiral King, or as we see, she's kind of politicking within her own sphere, you know, within. You could say, I think, PMC, you would argue, and, and I would agree with you, that Adina is constantly working in bad faith always like yeah she's we've, we've yet to see her work in good faith and and working in bad faith you can constantly be right in the right because right. you can adjust that well yes that, it, that's i mean you're we're, we're skirting around our modern politics here but that is something that is is a, is a thing is that you know so often people say things only for bad faith reasons right 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 um but um nia here uh uh learns the the circumstances b- behind her boxing <laughs> her her abandonment i guess yeah um, i think it's a transitional episode for both nia and simone as well like this is an important phase in the growth of these characters well the main thing that also happens is that once the digrindon learn that uh nia has is been abandoned that that she is kind of a a like not refuse that's harsh but like you know, she's up here now. As soon as she's not, you know, among the the accepted, the elite, so to speak, um, the, that the beastmen do represent, being the the, the people in power, uh, the Digrindon run to her assistance. Not not before Simone. In you know, not to talk about Lord of the Rings again, but uh, every time I see the scene, it reminds mm. me of uh, Return of the King when. Uh, Aragorn does his for Frodo, and he charges at the the, the armies of of Mordor. That that Merry and Pippin are the next ones to run. It's, it's the best fucking shot in Return of the King when when Merry and Pippin put all these like human soldiers to fucking shame, <laughs> um, and uh, they're overtaken, of course, because of their tiny little legs. And I always feel very afraid for the 
um, the stunt doubles for Mary and Pippin in those shots because I'm like, ooh, <laughs> like, please don't be trampled. <laughs> um, but uh, Simone, I, I'm not the only one who noticed because Nia makes a point. You know, Nia is very preternaturally emotionally intelligent because the making the point to acknowledge like, hey, I, I know that you tried. You know, you were the first one out there. And, like, Nia is, like, focused on Simone, for sure. And you could argue that that, this is less of a, like, uh, acknowledging that this would be powerful or helpful for Simone. And more just that Nia is attached to Simone being the first person that she saw and, you know, treated her like a person. Um, But I think it's it's a mix, honestly. I I think that is true. Mm. I think that's in the background. But I, I also think that we've seen that Nia... Nia doesn't maybe understand... Um, what we might call like common sense things, um, but she has a really good understanding of uh, uh, people's emotional states, right? Like she she hears Simone's story about being stuck uh, and Kamina being motivating them all to make it through, and she intuits the real truth of that, which is that ultimately it's Simone that got them out of there, and that Simone discounts a lot of his, what he contributes to not only the Digerndagon, but just his own abilities, period. Um, and, you know, we'll see in the next episode that this is not only something that Nia came to, but but something that Kamina understood. This is this is what Kamina explained to Yoko, and, it, and it's not a coincidence that it's Nia and Kamina who walk away with this understanding of Simone's abilities. That more or less brings us to the end of 10, though, right? I Were there any, so. any notes you guys wanted to bring up before we... Uh, before we uh, uh, drill down into the, the next episode, I just like to see how much, how well Team Diguron works as a team. Not only our principal characters, but even our more marginalized, or not in a bad way, but minor characters pushed to the side sometimes. They're operating the. Uh the Daigura and just turning different levers and everyone's working very succinctly. Again, a nice contrast to the Beastmen. Something that's fun that they'll do continuing on is even well, though we won't get necessarily like story beats that are about um, Iraq or Jurgen or Blenbo, um, they will cut to them to do a, a joke beat or a, like, like Jorgen and Blenbo have a really good recurring just like they just repeat each other or they'll be stomping in, in, in a rhythm or something like that. Like, I, I, anytime those two are on screen, usually it, it's a good beat. Attenborough, you know, will have a, a running gag about being trigger happy, right, as we move forward. Um, and, and that's how they continue the, the sort of like, um, quirky family feel that the yeah. Diagrindon end up having. Like, it, there is a, um, uh, 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 camaraderie that I think, they are able to tap into that other shows that are about this sort of, um, you know, found family in a enclosed environment. Like, um, uh, uh, I, I think of the original Gundam a lot and, and the white castle and how they're all on the white castle. And, and I don't, and I feel like they get there at feeling like a, a quirky family, but it, with the Diagrindon, it was like day one, right? Like day one, all these clowns, have this like sort of um uh uh you know uh please i'm going to dump all of my dishes onto your bed you fuck you do your dishes you fuck (laughs) like you know sort of feel to them that i don't think you know uh uh not to say gundam doesn't get there yeah i mean i think gundam you know to to point out the difference between the two that i think uh you know is why this is a criticism of another show but you know certainly the the setting of what 
the setting of Goron Lagan is, you know, just very different. They have already been probably operating with this sort of outlaw mentality in a way where the, the members of the White Castle are initially all really war refugees. You right. know? And that's a different tenor, of course. And, and military officers, right, for, for right. sure. A good point. A good point. Yeah. Now, that's a good comparison to like a dysfunctional yet loving family who are, who are not afraid to air their dirty laundry in plain day, in plain sight, but also to come together for like a group hug. Right. Um, the other thing I want to say is that I, even though it was um, uh, uh, scratchy, it was rough, um, I enjoyed the sort of rough quality of the, the mech battle that happens between the Daigurn Brigade and their gunmen and uh, a DNA's gunmen. It's, it's like rough, but in a way that I thought communicated the uh, energy of like a, a tussle well. Mm-hmm. Like it, there was something that is... Uh, effective in to me about that sort of fight versus something much flashier. You know, I've been watching um, uh, a Fate Unlimited Blade Works, and and people um, joke uh, and call that show Unlimited Budget Works uh, because of how flashy the animation is. It really is animated well, um, but you you run into that um, Star Wars Episode One thing where the lightsaber battles are are really impressive, but they end up kind of like overstaying their welcome because they don't. They're not a story. Like it, 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 they don't really end up meaning anything. They're just doing flashy moves, and, yeah. and that's. I think what ends up being effective about the uh, the sort of scrappy nature of some of these Digrandon uh, encounters. Um, and I did also like just uh, Liron with just a whole bunch of cables trying to <laughs> just to give him the boot in the in the Digran. Um and Viral coming in the last second. Uh, the the fact that Viral can stop the the Digurin and and throw it off honestly even though it's it's damaged currently and and that's why they're not able to just control it i think there is a running theme of the beastmen not really knowing what they have on their hands with Varal. like the, the Varal's position prevents him from really being successful because he's even though he is uh you know useful and effective because he's like low class or whatever the fuck like he he's not allowed to be making the calls and making the correct judgments and stuff like that the the show is not really going to be examining that but there is a constant with him right that the, absolutely yeah um, i do we mentioned this with anthony last pod but i do like the direction they take ralph's character it has engendered some sympathy in me for him where there was really little before i think that you know and and this is a this might be heresy I think he's a better version of the original Gundam Shar in that he is a character from the opposing side whose motivations are not necessarily Shar doesn't give much of a shit about Zeon in the original Gundam. He's just hot shit and he knows that in this place he can be allowed to be the most hot shit he can. His his ideas, his thoughts about things change over time. It is fair to say. I'm talking about the original Gundam Shar here. Um, and maybe even more Gundam Origin Shar if you've read Gundam Origin. But um, Viral, the difference mainly being that Viral does believe in the superiority of the, of the Beastmen. And, and Shar could give a fuck about <laughs> like At least in the original Gundam. And obviously his feelings change. Um... But the way that we have really what I'm talking about is the the, the rival character who eventually becomes our sixth ranger who who mm-hmm. will uh, n- not necessarily come around but their their bond with the main heroes is 
more complicated than hero and villain than than rival and you know foe like it's it becomes more than that uh and we're not seeing it yet but we'll understand more as he sticks around how that will end up being that way um but yeah that that kind of ends episode 10 um speaking of of white castle yeah let's get aboard right there on my back and here in my heart he lives on as a part of me i was very tempted instead of reading the summary to just read simone's speech i was very tempted um but i didn't want to be accused of 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 any laziness <laughs> even though i feel i just feel strongly about the speech and and i felt like it was the the thing to emphasize, but... Are you saying that you felt like you should take a hands-off approach? <laughs> hey! Um, oh, that reminds me, though. I did want to complain about the title <laughs> of this episode, so thank you, PMC. Um, so, uh, I mean, there's not much to say. The titles on Netflix are bad. The English titles aren't good. Um, yeah, I don't know what's going on. It's uh, it, this hands. I get it. I get the thing they're going for. The, the English title for this is "Hands Off, Simone," um, and or "Simone Hands Off." I think is what it actually is. And and what they're going for is the the double entendre of it. Of of you know like you you, you could see that being a, a phrase of of someone being like uh, lascivious, but but crossing a line, right? And and so it's not necessarily like aggressive, but maybe playful, possibly. Um, it's vague. Uh, I, I, I just don't like it. It's not really what she says. Like even I, I don't know what she says in the dub. Um, but it, even in the the subscript of it, she is saying move your hands. So I don't know. Did this? Did, am I, is this it, just an Ignis thing? No. You know, I think the thing is, is that like I, I also come from the perspective of yes, I see the double entendre, but it's it's a heavy. This is not the time for this sort of thing. <laughs> you know, like yes. we're. We're still in grief town. We have this roommate that we're trying to get rid of, yeah, exactly. or at least like come to terms with in a in a much more livable manner, right? And and the show knows that and respects that too. Yeah. So it's one step further the translators taking, right? So it's, it's kind of it's like I know this is a gag that we would do in this show, but from having watched the preview for twelve. This feels like a gag that should have been in the next episode. In the next episode, you know? I mean, the show pr- presses the sex button a lot, but it's not yeah. pressing it now. So the translator shouldn't. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with the choice. I respect the translator could take whatever, art, um, however, inter- whatever interpretation he or she wants. Feel free. I'm not criticizing that. Aspect. Right. My brain right now is just like I'm going to get a picture of an Xbox Series X and uh, highlight a button and say this is the this the sex, sex box, box button sex. right here. <laughs> sex button right please here. press the sex button to activate the sex box insert blank here <laughs> in any case <laughs> taking top of girl in episode 11 simone move all, your hand also known as the sex the episode. sex button yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right all right here we go here we are the humans have been lucky so far too lucky for guam's taste and he provokes the spiral king into allowing him to go into action the Digrandon are well on their way towards relative normalcy for them, with the existential dread being occasional instead of constant, and when they receive a distress, distress call. The distress call seems blatant, obviously a trap, 
But something being obviously a trap has never stopped this crew. Uh, so th- they're trapped. Uh, they're trapped by Guam, who captures Nia in particular. Guam, who has a perception of the Spiral King we have not seen from others, describes him as someone who hates self-awareness, a man who creates daughters for himself but considers them disposable dolls. The Digrendon almost call it quits when Simone's diligent digging allows him the clarity to finally internalize what Kamina and Nia have been telling him. Simone has been saved and thus saves his friends in return. Kamina is dead. He's not here anymore. However, he lives on in Simone's back, in Simone's heart, and as part of Simone. Gurren Lagan is reborn, defeating Guam and projecting, for, uh, projecting it for all of humanity to witness. Nia asks Simone to take her to where they found her so she can bury her sisters. The Digrendon uh, nominates Simone as their leader, the man who Kamina chose. With new fire in their hearts, they make for Teppelin. So yeah, that's that's episode eleven of Tengen Tapa Gurren Lagann. It is it is the the end of the the sort of like Kamina's death saga in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like episodes nine, ten, and eleven are kind of a of a piece. Yeah, the grieving uh, arc. Yes, and and it's uh, I will be honest. Um, the part of I think part of the reason I I might have been out on a mig- with a migraine the last week is because uh, when I did my rewatch. The night before, I was crying my eyes out, and then that tends to give me a headache, and that possibly might have fucked me up pretty bad. Um, anyway, I don't think Gurren Lagann gave me a migraine, but it's not impossible. Um, this really works. I, I think that the the picture they paint of Simone is we talked about how this show is in conversation with Evangelion, um, and and Evangelion really is on my mind when I'm watching this particular series of episodes. It it feels like it is tapping into that. There is a slow life feel to Evangelion that has a sort of added tinge of like Cthulhu horror to it. That there's like a sense that cicadas in the background. Yeah, exactly. There's something there's, there's a sense that like I have to go and get, like windshield washer fluid from Seven Eleven, but also uh, the sun is being grasped by a horror tentacle, right? Like, yeah. like that. There is a sense of that to Evangelion in 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 its entirety. Well, plus or minus the last couple episodes, but that's a whole other podcast. Um, and and Gurren Lagann has been living in in that world for a little while because that's kind of what. You know, I don't. I don't want to get super duper personal, but th- that's what grief is like, right? That, that's what those sorts of emotional states can do. It changes what the days can feel like day to day, right? And and we see in this series of episodes how every person has kind of been dealing with it moving forward. And and Simona has taken the longest, right? And uh, or, or with some people, they they can just keep going. Like Yoko, instead of you know, having it bring her down, she has to keep moving forward because she knows how much it will bring her down. Um, with this episode, I really like the first, uh, the first shot because it is, uh, Lagan in the garbage, uh, head down. And it's a very clear sort of like mental image of Simone right now. Um, and <laughs> Nia is, is trying to, she's just like, Hey, wait a minute. What's going on with this over here? Um, and what, when when we go to uh, uh, Simone, we see that he's he is spending his time making statues of Kamina heads over and over and over again. He keeps trying to capture 
the things about Kamina that that he admires, and he finds, uh, you know, mixed success. You know, we we can see him ourselves, and there there are a mix of like some of them are pretty good, some of them are much more vague and shapeless sort of thing. And one of my one of my favorite bits in this episode is when when Nia asks if she can stay and and watch watch him work, and it's very, you know, it, it's good. There, there are moments where you you are watching a, a, a character relationship blossom, and you can feel the work of the writer trying to push these characters into a particular state or relationship. And and sometimes that can feel bad. And in like you know, for example, in Deep Space Nine, I don't feel this way, but there are a lot of people who have big problems with the Kira Odo thing. There are a lot of people who do. I don't feel this way. I think it's cute and good, but you know, there are people who felt like it was the writer, the hands of the writers pushing a thing that maybe they had come up with, but didn't feel like it appeared organically in the show. I disagree, but different podcast. Um, Nia and Simone work for me in a way that, you know, is, uh, uh, I would uh, equate to a young adult, sort of novel situation. Uh, like I, I think of, um, uh, uh, fuck. I can't remember the boy. Yeah. Lyra and will from the golden compass trilogy. Um, I, I think of, uh, you know, um, I don't know if anyone here has read the darkest rising, but, um, uh, uh there's also a will in, uh, as the protagonist of that series. And, uh, he has a, a, a almost Killua-esque sort of cohort named Bronn, who is a sort of King Arthur character, mm-hmm. who has a sort of similar... They're not romantically involved, but their bond is similar in that regard. Um, this works for me. Does it... Do you guys... Oh, yeah. You took a lot of the words right out of my mouth, too. I really like this scene. This is one of my favorite scenes. Not necessarily to watch, but a scene I really respect. I'm sure there's criticism out there that this scene is very much on the nose. If you're still watching Gurren Lagann, that's your one critique... You got to get out. You got it for your own mental health. You just got to find a new show to watch. It's all right. Shows bounce off you. Shows bounce off of me. That's fine. This is a very much in tune with the show, but I think it's a really great at, uh, representation of depression too. I don't think I've been in the thro- like the throes of existential dread like since maybe as a teenager, but I definitely get anxious a lot. And whenever I'm anxious, I like to throw myself into a routine. My students and I are now reading a Hemingway novel called The Sun Also Rises. It deals with Hemingway's personal experience in World War One. Main character is Jake Barnes. Every he- fucking Hemingway character is the same. It's, it's a representation of Hemingway. That's a whole nother bag of snakes slash podcast episode. But Jake Barnes is constantly dealing with the trauma of the war. It's in the middle of 1920s Paris. Jake has a lot of well-worn routines in his day to cope with that war trauma. He specifically always has to pay everyone back, like, monetarily. Like, every transaction needs to be fulfilled and reach a final conclusion. But he also just has a lot of travel routines, too. Like, for example, every week I like to take a walk. Sometimes Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, I like to take a walk through the woods. And if I don't take it, I'm not, like, destroyed, but it throws off my routine and... These routines are more important to me and more necessary if I am either anxious or if I am depressed. Those routines are everything to me. And if I am especially despondent, I throw myself completely into said routines. I think what Simone here is dealing with is very appropriate and apt, and you know it resonates to me on a personal level. Yeah, I mean the common about the bust of comedy. Yeah, it's you know. I think it's perfect for the show, and I don't have a problem with it. It's symbolic, and it's exactly what comedy, I think, not comedy, Simone should do in this case. So I think what's interesting about it and it, is that what Simone's issue is, is that he has poor self-image. He, he has a hard time actualizing in his own mind 
the uh, his own abilities and contributions. This is this is easy to do if you're someone who who isn't used to framing their successes that way, right? If you're if you're someone who, for example, had uh, a a not harsh or or like you know bad parent necessarily, but someone who was really pushing you to be successful and wasn't necessarily happy with with second place. It's easy to have a hard time letting yourself uh, uh, celebrate an accomplishment, right? Because it, it, you're not used to, you haven't had that behavior framed for you, right? You don't know what it is like to let yourself, I'm not speaking about anyone in specific. I'm, I'm painting a picture. Um, and, that, and I feel like that's what's happening with Simone and, and, and actualizing that with busts of Kamina, of someone he understands the, the, the um, virtues of, I think for him is, is like also a process of trying to figure out what he wants, like who he wants to be. Um, and something that's interesting about um, the the particular words that he uses is that, is, you know, I think we should keep the, the descriptors he has in mind, especially when we'll see the sort of person that Simone will become, right? Like these, these descriptors, you know, strong and kind, um, uh, that he doesn't fight out of hatred and, and that he's loyal to friends and stuff like that. Um, these are things that are already true about Simone and just he doesn't have the ability to really recognize about himself. I think this is a pretty universal experience, right? I think it's difficult to, unless, you know, you're a shithead, I think it's it's difficult to let yourself sincerely, like, like uh, 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 comprehend your own like strong suits. I think that's a difficult and personal sort of thing, right? Everyone gets or, you know, has a journey where they sort of figure out, oh, this is my thing, right? This is, and some people don't, right? Some people never get there. But this episode is kind of about, you know, how, what ne- what Kamina's last words were and what Nia has been trying to say about Simone, like, end up combining with the situation, the kind of, I'll say, very specific situation that they're in. And and how those happenstance moments mix into the, a sort of it's not really like a magical realization that Simone has, but it's it's a, it sort of clicks in a way that even though it's contrived in the way that fiction is contrived, fiction has moments where ah it all dawns on me in the same sort of way that Columbo or you know um, Daniel Craig and Knives Out it, it like clicks right. Um, that's a thing that happens in fiction. Um, but the the trick of it is how you build up to that moment and how you execute it. And Eleven is a like masterclass of that it, for Gurren Lagann, anyway. It, oh, it, I definitely agree. And I'm really glad of these episodes too that we can see Simone's depression. It also shows how the genre has evolved, or how Amishi is taking the shows that he liked in the 70s and 80s and putting his own spin. And it's definitely still in conversation with Ava. Like if I mean, I haven't seen Zabungle, one of the shows that Gurren Lagann takes. Uh, you know, aesthetic and thematic inspiration from. Right. But I imagine there's not an, a two or three episode series where a character is thrust into a deep depression. But I really like how it's, not, you know, it, it's evolving in new and interesting ways. And it's also, I, it's not throwing the whole show into a, an entire depression either. Well, well that's what I was going to say is that it's, it's really, really smart that to, to stay with it for a little while, but not too long. Like it, it's not, we are not stuck in a, a like five or six episode like arc of this. It really, uh, we live with it just enough to understand it thoroughly and maybe get sick of it a little bit. But once we come to the other side, 
We are it, it like the normalcy of it, the the triumph of returning to the Looney Tunes logic is like uh, it, it, it it how else it it, it reminds me of um, the. You are all free now, Kif. That from mm. the end of tournaments, that like, yeah, the, the Ricky O dub, yeah, yeah. Um, because it, it's that sort of triumph, right? Of like, no, actually, we we can do this. This will work, um, but it, we're not there yet. Um, we cut back to oh, sorry. I just see? wanted to add a comment about the digging scene. I, I've talked before about how you know I I understand with the logon and some of the other elements of spiral power mm. that it's really you know often a barometer on what's going on with Simone and I think more so than maybe earlier in the series I really like the this grief arc because I think uh the ways in which uh because now with episode 11 I look back at the 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 gross feedback in episode 9 uh, you know, or the complete unresponsiveness that you know in episode ten and for the early part of eleven, and the, you know the decay, and I can see now that you know at first Simone is trying to Simone is being someone who he isn't in episode nine. That's that's where his depression takes him. He's snapping at people. He's trying to battle like Kamino would have battled, but that's not him. Uh, and then in episode ten, he you know fails to value his own capabilities, and I think accordingly the logon does not respond. Uh, but you know what's nice about this early episode eleven is that he he's you know he's doing what he's best. At. He's the you know the shoveler from Mystery Men. It's the best at shoveling. That's true. And um, <laughs> can't argue with that. <laughs> and so my, my brain's fried though. That's fucking great. I'm into that. And so, but he, you know he's he's digging. He's he's working with the earth in right. which. So often we hear in, uh, we're going to hear soon to revisit the the story about Kamina that Yoko knows, that we're going to learn he's the best at working with Earth, and that is a real you know value in town. And in addition to being loyal to friends and all those other attributes, but for Nia to just sit there and be like, "Hey man, I'm going to watch you do your thing." Is that is that cool? Like you can see her valuing him, and that just sort of passive environmental valuing is good that's a healthy relationship thing to get back to the point of does simone and neo work for you thank you and that that, that, oh not to throw ignos off that scene i throw around the phrase literary just because that's my mode of operation some (laughs) people might side i mean at that because it's kind of like gatekeeping i'm not trying to but it's just my internal barometer right that scene's just very literary for me it's it's how i elevate different pieces of art and it's not bad if i elevate one piece piece of art like like push one down like code gs doesn't have this like literary eye you might have another word for what you substitute in as literary but like this is a scene i really respect for that reason it knows its characters it knows how to respect those characters and it does right by the text it, and you know we're, all i was saying before was that that really pmc brought home the 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 point of how this this quiet moment of nia basically giving credence to what simone is doing because of how she admires it it's sitting down and just watching him do his thing there is a intrinsic value to his labor right and and she is recognizing it's that thing you know not to bring it back to uh uh speed running necessarily but this is why people will watch runners do routing and stuff like that even though this is it's tedious it is it is running up against it doesn't work 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 i failed i have to restart i have to restart and i'm not this is not me criticizing Mm -hmm. what i'm saying is that people want to see people work it out people want to see you know like oh how did you this is why there are the how did this get made shows or the the 99 invisibles right like people are interested in in that 
uh, and just you know uh, uh, giving someone the the perspective that they are their efforts are valued is uh, you know in this case it is uh, salvation for for Simone it is the thing that that helps him understand what Kamino was saying um, <laughs> we get back to the spiral capital uh, and Guam and Cytomander early on in this episode. I think it's after the, the intro Um, and uh, Cytomander and Guam and Lord Genome have basically decided that Adina has, has failed, right? She wasn't killed and we will see her again, but they have decided that it didn't work out. Um, And we see Guam speaking to the, the, uh, the spiral King in a way that, you know, and the, the show will call it out in a way we haven't seen the other beastmen refer to Lord Genome. It doesn't really go anywhere in this episode necessarily, other than it helps us paint a picture of Guam as a little bit more cunning than the other generals we've seen thus far. Although it doesn't seem to be, we don't get to see it exercised a ton in this episode other than it's like, twisted he's a little yeah. bit more twisted yeah i think others. it mostly paints a picture of guam being uh more more self-aware and aware of the scope of the spiral king which is funny right because he talks about how much the spiral king hates self-awareness so there's, right. a, there's a heavy contradiction going on there yeah i almost wonder if um we are to upon revisiting gurn lagan uh understand guam as a, a unreliable narrator for for Lord Genome, I'm not sure how intentional uh, of of a mode that is for for Guam, but I I don't know if I would necessarily agree with some of the some of the observations. Like I'm not sure if it's self awareness that that really you know to to use like a like that really caused Lord Genome to abandon Nia in that way. Like we have to take his word for it at this point because we we just don't have any other insight in the, in the text, but. Based off of stuff that we learn later, I'm not sure. I wonder how much of that is a misunderstanding. Because we, you know, Guam says some other stuff that ends up having a secondary meaning if you are revisiting the show. Like, he, he has a... Later when he's reflecting about the, the, the trick of the trap, even though he didn't... It's not so much a successful trap as much as the, the, the Diker and Don are easy marks. <laughs> um, but... Uh, um, uh, you know, he's, he reflects like, oh, they, they, you know, the beastmen are their enemies, so they think all humans are are their allies. And then he reflects, he says, they don't even know who their real enemy is, which is, you know, in this moment, a line that could mean a lot of things, mm-hmm. but has a, a especially different meaning if you know the places the plot is going to go. And I'm just curious how much, you know, did that occur to you guys as, as he mentioned this line at all? Or, or was that more just, uh, did you feel like this was more just like possible table setting where they can slot in like, you know, what, whatever into that? Like, did, did any of that occur to you guys as this was, uh, I bumped on that line too. Yeah. Um, another line I bumped on too is the fact that Guam is using the phrase Gurren Lagan. It's like when you're a kid and you make up a word and then the adult uses the word, it just shows you like how powerful words can potentially be. I mean, these, you know, Common and Simon made up these fucking terms and the fact that they're being uttered in the, the sanctum sanctorum shows just how powerful words can be as well. Like if, if you, you know, it's when your dad says like makes an okay boomer joke or something like that, just how far words can travel. It's, it's definitely... Um, uh, uh, interesting that Guam is the first time we're sort of acknowledging the 
special nature of the Lagan. We, you know, the Lagan is is in in uh, there is a recurring thing in mech shows uh, where mechs are either uh, the product of a military project of some kind, or they were discovered underground. Right, they they were discovered underground, left by an advanced civilization. These are the two. That's flavors it. of mech that's it yes exactly that's all you got um or or it's magic right that these are the three uh it's magic bitch um <laughs> uh um and the lagan has it was it's an artifact we found underground and we we're fine with it right this is in on one way we haven't had really the time to stop and be like wait what um McGuam is now having that moment of being like this. This I think the, the miniature mech is is whatever it is that's causing the Gurnlagon to have the features that it shouldn't have. They're they are now recognizing part of the reason that the humans have been as successful as they are is that they're utilizing something that they shouldn't have access to. Now the you know to put on the the spoiler glasses once again the the uh, I'm I'm picking up that Lord Genome is is disconnected in a sort of if you've watched the Castlevania series that is on Netflix the Dracula in the second season of Castlevania is revealed to be depressed and disconnected from the whole plot of destroying humanity and and that's why the heroes are able to get as close to and and successful as they are um and and it's actually a really clever way to uh uh do the sort of like heroes raiding the villain's castle and why they are successful in defeating this enormous power. And I, and I get that same feeling from Lord Genome. Like he's just disconnected from ruling this over. Like he, he's not really that engaged with ruling over a kingdom or having like he, it, it seems like the, that's why he doesn't care about this. Yeah. It has a feeling of inertia, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so Guam is, is, you know, trying to be almost the Roshi of the, the Beastman side where he's like, Hey, you know, maybe things matter. <laughs> maybe things should matter. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was, it was interesting to always get the, the tidbits of story we do from the Beastmen. Um, uh, but, uh, as we move forward through this episode, we will also kind of be introduced to, the way that the other Gurren, Die Gurren Brigade members have now sort of internalized the Kamuna thing. The, one of the next big interaction scenes we get is the discussion of how to treat this obvious, obvious fake distress call. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, something I was thinking about with this obvious fake distress call was uh, when we were talking about episode six, the bathhouse episode, um, and how it kind of lives in this other universe from the rest of the episodes and because of its Looney Tunes logic, right? Um, and I almost wondered if this beginning bit was like a weaponization of that. Um, I mean, I, I would argue it's not because the reveal of it happens almost instantly, right? Like, the joke of it is that it's obviously a trap and then it is. Yeah, it's a trap. Let's move on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 the you know, I, I was just thinking about six and its sort of uh, uh, lack of tension in there, where we weren't really worried about the, you know, our heroes really, and and here it's it's a different feel. 
Um, and, and I think it has to do with the, the real ass looking guns that all the, the anteaters have. Like, they just have real ass looking guns. And I think that, and the same thing with Guam. Guam <laughs> takes out this, like, comical real ass looking gun. And he's like this little, like, you know, armadillo motherfucker. He looks like Armadillo Mon. And, and like, you know, he's such a shithead. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I, and I sort of dig this, like, uh, survival of the fittest thing that Guam is kind of pushing with when he, you know, points his real ass gun at the, the seagull or whatever. Mm. But I guess now I, I, the real, there are two real substantive m- moments coming up to really discuss. That is the, the Guam and Nia conversation mm-hmm. where we have our uh, Guillermo del Toro artsy-fartsy uh, paper sequence paper doll sequence um and then we have the the wraparound to the simone story right which is coming up when we check in on the the gurn brigade when they're stuck in their cell um guam has a plan uh the plan is to capture the die gurn brigade take back all their technology and then execute them on a world stage for everyone to see he has set up cameras and projectors in strategic places you know he didn't attack those places he just set up projectors that's fine i i get it i get what he's going for um and uh you know this is the he's trying to do the he's trying to undo all the work that kamina and simone and the diagram brigade have done inspiring humanity by basically shutting it the fuck down right you know it's like actually eat shit is is the is what he's trying to sort of emphasize here, um, but the it feels like the thing with Nia is like personal. Um, the the way that he takes Nia aside and has the conversation with her, um, we we have this sort of feeling that they have some kind of previous relationship, maybe as like ruler and subject of some kind, you know, like in the way that. Uh, Relina might have known some delegates that her father knew. That that's sort of the feeling yeah, that I get. Yeah. Um, uh, but this conversation feels less like one where we learn too much about Guam and Nia, respectively, than a, a sort of demonstration of the attitude that the the ruling members of the Beastmen have towards Nia at this point. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, we, you know. There isn't really much sympathy for Nia's position from Guam too much. Uh and and in fact like the the most sympathy he has towards it is this this gross um body thing where we have even we see from his perspective a, a, a like a sort of like uh painting up shot of Nia as a like physical object rather than, you know, as a person. Um and we learn that this village that was used as a trap is like where you know to answer partially possibly answer the question i asked the, in our last discussion you know about the the harem women um you know this is where the princesses come from apparently is this this village and it's actually in the manga adaptation of gurren lagan um they they go into this village in a lot more detail there's oh, a lot more of an arc that happens here with um nia and this this girl village um uh, I like n- n- when Nia bodies Guam. <laughs> it's pretty fucking good. <laughs> With that open palm slap, sends him fucking fine. Um, <laughs> although um, I do not like the way that he he sits there splayed on the floor laughing. Uh, the I just don't like his his fucking open man spread there. Not into that. Um, 
Yeah, Guam's a real uh, lecherous motherfucker at times. It's weird, right? It's it's. But it's, he's fucking smart. Like the the whole projector thing that would probably stamp out the seeds of revolution for a while. For, like he's 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 you know he's it, fucking smart. It's cunning, yeah. And and it's it, it, I think he's he is approaching it from an angle that um, Adine and Varal. Uh, just apparently don't even know to approach. You know, they, I don't think they have the respect at this point for humanity to even l- like give the idea of, or not give the idea, rather uh, of of like stamping out the idea being the problem, right, or being the solution rather to the problem of of the human rebellion, right? Like Guam understands the 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 point that Stephen Hero has been making on our Twitter that that there's a a spark of rebellion and that's what needs to really be dealt with um but uh so he puts the guy Digeron brigade in a in a in a hole in a in like a dirt prison um and we see that they 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 refuse to give up uh and they they're, they're going to try all these different methods of of digging their way out um you know Kitan just fucking takes a bite out of the wall <laughs> cuz that's Kitan uh, Jogan and Balumbo are just uh, rhythmically just headbutting the, the wall. We see my favorite is in a in a, a backup shot. There is a a tower of gentlemen who, who like who's just like being slammed against the wall. Uh, and I love that shot of those like three or four gentlemen just like a tower of gentlemen just smacking against that wall. Um, and you know it, it doesn't get them fucking anywhere. It's just a clown show all the way down, um, except for Simone who's just diligently working away in his corner and and i really like the shot of the of all of them sort of uh uh just listening to him dig and work and it's just this quiet moment of all of them taking it in um and when it hits yoko what he was talking about uh, and i think it's specifically something i like is how it focuses on the image of simone's back right like we'll see here in uh yoko's retelling and we'll see that yoko we recognize the exact scene where uh, this we heard this story because it's the end of episode seven. I'm pretty sure um, when at night uh, Yoko is asking Kamina like, "Hey, don't do a crazy thing again. We need you to live." And and it must have happened between then where Kamina tells the story that we heard last time, but from Kamina's perspective. And what we learned is that Kamina was flipping the fuck out internally that he was not sure he thought he got them into a situation where they were going to die um but simone constantly working away uh kept giving him hope and it was he says that it was the uh, you know the image of his back i wanted to become a man who that back couldn't laugh at um and the the real trick the real core thing that we learn is that the thing that made communa communa was Simone. It was Simone that inspired him in the first place early on, way before. And and Kamina is not shy about this. He basically has been saying this from day one. Um, but it, it's not something that Simone understood in his heart in the same way. And I think now the show is showing or is is explicitly letting us in on that emotional journey as well. Right? What like I'm not saying that everyone was in the same place where they all we all understood obviously that Simone was a valuable person and he's coming around to this um but i think as an audience member you emotionally get there once you get to simone's big moment episode in in this episode um uh did you guys have any thoughts about nia's predicament simone's uh, uh like rescuing her 
Um, anything that I haven't touched on when uh, discussing the uh, communist story or any of these elements that we've been touching on in the last couple of minutes? No, I don't think so. Because I, I think anything I have to say is really probably going to tie into the to the finale bit here, or, or how we end the episode. There's one thing I do want to mention. It's that there are some people. Not say I'm not bagging on anyone's opinion here, but there are some people who watch Gurren Lagann. And they watch the whole show, but they particularly like the first, you know, eight episodes. And they go, yeah, Kamina, Kamina's dope, man. I want to be like Kamina. The show valorizes Kamina and as the absolute ideal of masculinity. He's the man everyone should aspire to be. But the, really, the show says that, and Simone comes to this conclusion, too, even though they, they work best as a pair, as, as some sort of synthesis, that Kamina is, Kamina is Kamina and Simone is Simone, and that's all right. Simone, Simone can be Simone. You can be you. And that is sometimes that message is muddled a bit in Gurren Lagann, but I think that is one of the thematic through lines that I really latch onto in the show. Yeah, I think the um, the I think you were spot on when you you called it a synthesis, right? Yeah. The 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 thing that Simone is is realizing here is that uh, he the things that make him him are uh, inherently valuable, and that he can incorporate the things that he uh, likes about Kamina that he likes about. Nia, that he likes about Yoko, that he likes about the Daigurin Brigade into himself and to create a stronger, more effective whole. Almost like combining two mechs together to make a cooler mech. Eyebrows. <laughs> um, so, in the moment where Simone re- puts it together, when he, which is when he's digging, and which is like, great, <laughs> That's it's exactly right. Um, and it, you, we could see in his face. Um, it reminds me of the shot in the first episode when they're they're escaping the village and they're they're digging through the ground and we're we're zooming in on Simone's face and and it, it suddenly turns into a smile and it's it, and you can almost see he's in that same headspace here digging and as soon as he gets to that headspace the Lagan shows up again and it's like yo let's let's fucking go like we're we're in it now and so when uh, Nia announces to Guam, like, I, I'm not fucking scared of you. Like, you've, uh, you know, Simone's going to save me. I don't, I don't give a shit about this. And Guam's like, oh, uh, is Simone the guy who pilots the mini-mech? And he's like, hey, hey, go get the kid. Let's kill the kid. <laughs> um, and uh, before Guam has the ability to shoot Nia in the head, she is saved at the last moment by, by Coco. By Coco Jisan, um, who as the, uh, you know, who's faster than speeding bullet. And I'm fine with that. Yeah, that's uh, fine. It's whatever. But it gives Simone the the ability to to really show up like a big damn hero, um, and and drill very specifically to to break Nia's bond, which I, I like as an image. I'm I'm fine with it. <laughs> um, oh, same here. Yeah, and and even though this is a uh, a damsel in distress situation specifically, it, it's coming at the result of a character beat that Simone really could only come to because of. The, the emotional labor that, that Neo was performing. And like that in itself is an issue, one that w- you could critique and one that I wouldn't necessarily blame you for critiquing. But as a, a narrative, it's, it works. I think it's effective and, and it accomplishes what it's setting out to do. Now, that whether or not that it's going to be something that you know you connect to or... Uh, you, you it works enough that you, you let go that it's a 
tried and true sort of thing. You know, your mileage may vary, but for me, I'm like, yes. Yeah, I was fine with the two. Originally, because I had forgotten a lot of the show upon rewatching it, I was very hesitant when, I mean, I knew Nia revealed herself coming out of a box, but I was like, here we go. But Nia continues to surprise me, much like how some of the other characterizations continue to surprise me. Mm. She's not my favorite character by any stretch of the imagination, but I really do appreciate her, especially her role in the narrative and her as a person. I think it could be easy to be hand wavy and and to regard things as shorthand especially with distance right like you you remember broad strokes and not necessarily specifics and because anime does not do its ladies well 99 percent of the time it, it can be easy to sort of forget the 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 sort of things that it do it does get right because of the titty um but in this moment um Sabon and Nia are alone in the sky, um, in, in evocative of the first episode again, um, and even playing the same uh, uh, song. I'm pretty sure. And there's no like lecherous jokes either, which is dope. Yes, no, it does not. Um, it, uh, there's something that that's consistent about the show, and I'll point it out again when it happens again. But the show actually maintains Nia's dignity all throughout. There, yeah. there really doesn't indulge in uh, panty shots. It doesn't indulge in you know upskirts it, it, it when it does happen it's usually like blacked out or something like that now i will say in the next episode it's a swimsuit episode so you know that that's coming <laughs> uh but still the, it, it is an attitude that i that surprises me like especially with the show right you would with the way that that yoko is presented yeah i wouldn't have expected that for nia now the movies do not treat nia in the same way but you know, whatever. Um, this is a conversation I, I don't even know how to have. <laughs> but uh, uh, we see... Oh, did you guys have any thoughts? I didn't mean to preface you here. Did you guys have any thoughts about Gember? His... Uh, That's uh, what I was about oh, to get to. It owns. Oh, you're, you're into Gember? Uh, 100%. Yeah, Gember all the way around. Yeah, Gember is a very PMC. Um, so, yeah. so the... the, um, the uh, uh, DD or the, the figure that this is playing off of is Genbu, uh, the turtle. Um, and the uh, uh, design of it, I, I think it, it's. Um, uh, I think this is probably the best possible interpretation of the the like face as the majority of the mech for um, the enemy mechs uh, because it has a uh, you know to uh, continue the theme that we've set up with Adina. It has a sort of like a humanoid mode, and then it has a sinistar mode. Um, where uh, beware lives and, and hungers, and and, yeah. it, and it does in fact hunger. Um, uh, we see uh, in a, a really cool, like a slideshow, as uh, um, Guam travels from one end of the uh, Daiguran to the other, that the humans have risen up. Uh, gamers, you know, sit down, and humans rise up, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, we see even that they've they've uh, uh, recruited the the girls from the village. The you know, Guam is wrong. Uh, in this moment, because the humans do help the Daigurin once you know the rebellion begins, um, and we see that Roshu has kind of continued his his role as the the pilot of the Gurren. Right, he is uh, in there with it with the rest of the crew, um, and and he's the first one to step up when Guam shows up in the Gember, but then he gets owned a little bit. But that's okay. Chomp, 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 chomp. Yeah, <laughs> he's getting bored. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, someone called Griffin. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. For me, the Gember was probably the most video gamey of all of these mechs so far. It's like very, 
having no experience with Dark Souls games, it has like a very Dark Souls aesthetic, like the hulking nature over it, over a much smaller person. I, I sure. Would, yeah. Almost like a Neo boss or something like that. Right. I, the thing is, I would say Gember has a, a very much, uh, you know, I, I watch this uh, Twitch streamer, McCall45, a lot, who plays a lot of older games. And one of the things he always remarks upon in any sort of game, whether it's a shmup or a, a 2D platformer or something like that, is when you get these boss sprites that fill up the whole screen. Yeah. And Gember is like prime mm. boss that fills up the whole screen kind of material. Yeah. It, for sure. That's actually a really good way of putting it, I think. And I, and I think the comparison to Dark Souls is not inapt. Like, there's a. There's, I, I, I don't know what the fucking names are, but there's a famous pair of bosses where one is like a knight with a spear and he's fast, and there's a, a big fucking guy with a hammer and he's slow. And that's the sort of visual language I'm getting from mm-hmm. Gember, right? Um, so, uh, uh, Roshiu, Roshiu's in the Gurren and is being attacked by the Gember and Gember is, is eating him good. And Roshiu is, hears Simone's voice as, as Simone, he says, Hey man, we're going to do this. And Roshiu is I- instantly in it. He's like, fuck yeah, <laughs> let's fucking go. Uh, this song that's playing is called happily ever after. Uh, by Linkin Park. By by Shoko <laughs> Nakagawa, who sings <laughs> sings the intro to to Gurren Lagann. Um and uh it's funny because the song itself, when you hear it, especially if you don't know the language, um it doesn't sound like it, but it, the lyrics are pretty melancholy. It, it is not as like revelatory as the song sounds right mm-hmm. it, it sounds triumphant right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah um like we're coming out of uh, uh uh you know we're coming out of a tunnel and here's the light you know is what the song sounds like um and my favorite part about it uh other than simone um adopting uh the the structure of a communist speech but not the 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 substance like this is this is not about how awesome simone is this is about how oh i get it oh i get it Sorry, everybody, I get it. And the best part about it for me is the uh, reactions. There is a a great montage during the speech where we cut to the not only Guam reacting, but the Digurin Brigade. The entirety of the Digurin Brigade has a a litany of different reactions. We have the the sort of like the 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 boys who I would refer to like Blimbo, Iraq, Zorthi, Kitan is the the leader of the boys. I would say who are are stunned right like they they are not it's not that they're surprised that simone has this in them but like this isn't the mode that they're used to seeing simone in and then you can see it's a, a mix of like stun and like awe right um and we see the the more techie the attenboroughs and your and you know the the engineers of the crew and a lot of them are also in that sort of same boat but because they these crew have a bit more of the maturity in them there's like more one or two faces who are who are just big smiles right um and then the best shot of course is when we get to our like more of the emotional crew your diakas and your mm-hmm. your lerons like leron fucking just slowly nodding with a with a with a knowing smile on his face cuz leron knew that that simone was going to get here this is for me why i interpret Liron's speech to Roshiu as as tough love because mm-hmm. to me this nodding this knowing smile like you I think that you, it's easy to relate to this sort of like oh of course yeah of course. of course of course yeah it's 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 to me the the like we've been having our vegetables for for three episodes long and we we finally get the first juicy delicious bite of steak uh uh even you know this moment where Simone. Uh, announces his title as Simone the Shoveler, um, the the best at shoveling. Um, 
he uh uh it's not really the, the you know uh revelation of Gurn Lagan being back that's the real like clincher here the moment that really that really puts a period on everything is when Simone defeats Skember with the Giga Joe break and you know in in the episode with Anthony I, I referred to it as um you know Kamino's gift to Simone like his Excalibur um and this is where we really get to see it, it happen and I think you know when we talked about the synthesis uh that that Simone represents uh, I think the clearest you know example of this is the Gurren is the is the Giga Joe break because of mm obviously the the drill aspect of it but the way that it's a setup for the attack is through the inexplicable multiplying sunglasses which is a, a clear communa riff mm, right, right that, that's right. a communa thing yeah. not a simone thing um and you know uh, uh uh guam's hubris has projected this now to all of humanity all of humanity got to see how much we own yeah, and the 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 damage of that yeah, really fucking backfired for Guam. Yeah, this this did not work <laughs> in a way that you know um, is maybe the final straw as far as the 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 momentum of the Daigurin Brigade. Like they they will now not be stopped until they get to the capital, basically. Um, and you know, it is this victory that kind of allows, I think, for. You know the the absurdity of the the crowning of of Simone the the leader. I, I think is, you know, I think this beat allows you to be emotionally there, right? When the, you know, when they finally turn and say like, "Hey, you're in charge now." The, the fact that Simone is like twelve doesn't really like you. You're you're kind of emotionally you accept that this is the thing that makes the most sense, right? Uh, even if like it's you know there's a contrivance to it because he's the protagonist, but you know. Um, I do like the also that we get to take a, a minute and divert from the the triumph and and spend some a little bit as a like epilogue of a uh, time of with solemnity when we we go and bury the the princesses the other you know Nia's sisters so to speak there is a um it, it is a you you could almost call it like totally dissonant, right? Like that we're you know we just spent all this time being like woo, um, and then and now we're gonna go to awake. Uh, but like, but I mean it fits with the episode, right? Because this is the end of the, of the grief arc, and I think saying that you know we're gonna carry these people with us, they're not forgotten. I agree. I, yeah, and you know? Nia's bearing her past just as much as Simone is bearing Kamina. Right. These episodes act as a, a funeral of sort to Kamina. Do we have a formal funeral for Kamina? So um, later, later in the show, I think we missed it. Probably, I, I think this was a, a thing that happened off screen. But later in the show, we will see that Kamina has a grave, mm-hmm. um, and I think actually this place where they buried the princesses, where you know Nia describes it as a place where the sun is shining. I think this is where Kamina is buried. Mm-hmm. We see Kamina and his, his grave is marked with his katana later on, um, and Simone will be visiting his grave site. Later on, before spoilers, he leaves the earth. Because um, even without like an actual funeral here, I thought this, these episodes, particularly a few speeches in this episode, serve as a fitting eulogy. Some of the things Simone says to Nia earlier on, I, when he's talking about digging in common and what he remembers about common. We've described grief thus far as a, as a roommate here, and and I think this is to to put a cap on that metaphor. Um, the this is the moment where you've figured out 
what's comfortable, right? It's like, so, you know, grief won't have their rent at the, the moment, the day it's due, but they'll have it the day after every single time, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, and now they've learned, Simone's learned how to live with the, the grief of, he says as much, basically. Um, and I also, I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I lost my shit when he gives Nia the rock. That little green rock uh, is, is very, very good. Um, uh, and when I also lost my shit a bit when they give him, they give him shit about his Simone the Digger thing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's that pretty, was excellent. Yeah. That's, that's very uh, sincere, and, and it feels... Um, What's the term? Authentic. It feels like mm. a- authentic sort of uh, ribbing, um, but that that ends, uh, you know, the the communist death arc. It ends, you know, it begins a new chapter in the Gurren Lagann story. Especially for our road trip, we were kind of returning to our original framing in a lot of ways, but with instead of Kamina uh, as our forward momentum with Simone, and and you know, it's going to change how the show feels. We might be in for some 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 conversations next week, you know. Um, we 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 you know. I I I have memory of the next episode uh, uh, containing more substance than you'd think. I think we're going to be surprised in the mm, same way yeah. we were for right, six, for but six. you know the the tits they're coming. Yeah, I didn't realize until uh, Anthony brought it up too that the Netflix version was edited for six. Because remember, I'm watching the Blu-ray cut, so I, I guess I watched. I saw it all. It's all everything. It's, so, it's too late. I've seen everything. I've seen it all. There is a, but I, you know, I, I and we discussed this kind of. Um, I, we, we got what mattered in, yeah. in episode yeah. Oh, I'm not complaining about censorship. I was just, I didn't know. I forgot it was censored and that Netflix retained the censorship. Yeah. Not I, that I have a problem with that. I think the thing to be clear that, that was like changed, like it's not like it's not like one version has has nips and one doesn't. It, it's it's more like there are less there are just some moments that are taken out just for the sake of time and, and less crudeness on TV, yeah. I think. But it's not like you know, there's we get to see balls and and you know what I mean. It's not that kind of censorship. It's more just like, <laughs> uh, sorry, I just had the image of um of the uh, Dagons and having truck nuts. <laughs> so vagina bones. It's all yeah. it's one of the same. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, um, I have been uh, uh you know effusive with praise is is a thing that I had said earlier, uh, uh and this series of episodes i think just completely works there's no part of it where i was like man i spent too much time in this or man that this is too like they're indulging too much in this thing i i felt like there was a goal and every piece was working towards that goal uh what did you guys think i completely agree i have also i often have my antennas are out to pick up on any when the when the hand the writer is scribbling too furiously and i didn't pick up on any of that at any time because i would have commented it like i always do but here it was it was all natural um ignis talked about it being the vegetables and i definitely agree with that and i enjoy the vegetables sometime i do i i enjoy those slow melancholy feels if you've been listening to machinations you know that by now when we get to evangelion i will revel in it at times and here i really did appreciate it it didn't feel unwanted unwarranted it felt perfectly placed yeah i mean i i've been looking for emotional and thematic arcs to grab a hold of and this sequence of episodes is a great set to do that with it really you know i even as i might complain about uh you know aesthetic or or mechanical design uh there's no question there's a story here and we're along for the ride yeah for sure 
So you will definitely catch us next time where we're we're going to be uh, sunscreened up. Uh, yeah, pay five ninety nine for the uh, beach DLC episode next week. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you'll get all of our uh, beach outfits. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you want the Mechanation swimsuit DLC? Yeah, yeah exactly. PMC and his speedo. Uh, uh, me and and I'll have a snorkeling outfit and uh, see, and copious sunscreen. Yeah, Stephen Hero in, in his uh, uh, teeny polka dot bikini. Uh, uh, but yes, uh, five ninety nine on patreon <laughs> or a year later for the game of the year edition that's, either one that's right uh, what game do you immediately think of i think i have two well, i think of valkyra chronicles immediately when i think of like paid dlc swimsuits uh, uh tales games yeah, yeah that's right i mean right now just because they're on my mind trails has some of that and so for sure yeah yeah know. so it's just an anime yeah it's yeah. an anime game thing uh but you know who watches anime honestly and with that <laughs> I was one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox. Steven Hero. BMC Trilogy. And you can catch us next time at the beach! The beach! Alright. Kimi wa kiko edu. No. <clears throat>